Have you ever wondered why a certain house in your neighborhood has stood abandoned for years or even decades? Or maybe you've heard about a terrible murder in your town, but you've never known exactly where it happened. Hi, I'm Jules, and welcome to Morbid Tourism, the podcast. On this podcast, I'm going to talk about the true crime cases that may have happened closer to home than you thought. Warning. This episode contains descriptions of extreme violence and is not recommended for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. A lot of the nursery rhymes that we've heard as a child have some seriously sinister origin stories. Ring Around the Rosie is actually referencing the sickness and death that occurred from the Great Plague. There's also a theory that the rhyme, London Bridge is Falling Down, is actually referencing children being sacrificed and buried in the foundation of the London Bridge. Now, a lot of these origin stories are speculative. You know, these nursery rhymes have been around for sometimes hundreds of years, and it's really difficult to say with any degree of certainty where they started. But there is one rhyme in particular where we are sure of the origin story, although the details remain a little fuzzy. That rhyme is Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Since we know the origin story for this rhyme, we can also say that it's not exactly an accurate description of the events that actually took place inside the walls of what is now 232nd Street in Fall River, Massachusetts. So what did happen? Lizzie Andrew Borden was born on July 19th, 1860 to father Andrew Borden and mother Sarah Borden in the small town of Fall River, Massachusetts. The couple already had one child, a daughter named Emma, who was around nine years old when Lizzie was born. Andrew Borden, who I'll be referring to as Mr. Borden moving forward, he had found a good deal of success in Fall River. He was the president of a bank, he owned several commercial properties, he owned several farms, and he also was a real estate developer. So he had a lot going on, but money was not an issue for the Bordens. Even though they were fairly wealthy, though, their lifestyle didn't really reflect their wealth. Mr. Borden grew up pretty poor, and he was notorious around town for being super frugal with his money. And I don't mean a little frugal, like, oh no, let's not eat out tonight, let's cook at home. No, no, he took it to a pretty extreme level. Even though electricity and plumbing was fairly standard for any like upper-class home by the mid-1800s, the Borden home lacked these two basic utilities. Instead of a bathroom with running water, the home had a water closet in the basement, and each bedroom had slop pails. They are exactly what you think they are, and they had to be emptied every morning. The home where the family lived also was located about a block from Main Street in town, which was super convenient for Mr. Borden. It made it very easy for him to get to his businesses, but 
this area wasn't especially known for being affluent. It was more the type of area where kind of workers and laborers lived, not where the super wealthy people lived. Mr. Borden simply felt that he had lived his whole life without things like electricity and plumbing, and he had been very successful, so why make a change to that now? When Lizzie was just three years old, her mother Sarah sadly died. Three years later, Andrew remarried, this time to Abby Durfee Gray, a 35-year-old woman, which made her kind of a spinster for the time, but she also came from a pretty affluent family, so the pairing worked out. Now, I'll be referring to Abby as Mrs. Borden moving forward, even though, remember, she's not Lizzie and Emma's mother, she's their stepmother. Mr. and Mrs. Borden raised Emma and Lizzie in a pretty conservative religious way, but as the girls got older, they started to rebel a bit, as teenagers do. They tolerated their stepmother, but it was far from a loving relationship, and they referred to her as Mrs. Borden. Eventually, Lizzie and Emma stopped having meals with their parents altogether and lived kind of independent lives, but they still lived within the same household. Although I'm sure there were a number of factors at play in the relationships, one of the major factors we know for sure is that by the time Lizzie was in her 20s and Emma was in her 30s, they also were considered spinsters and the likelihood that they would be able to find a suitable husband was growing smaller and smaller. The women blamed their lack of suitors on their father's frugality, which meant several things for them. One, the house wasn't as nice as it could be, and two, they weren't allowed to buy nice things like dresses that they could wear to different dances and balls and social situations where they might meet a man. And also, they couldn't throw parties themselves where they could meet eligible suitors. One expense that Mr. Borden did allow for was a housekeeper. In 1892, this housekeeper was a 25-year-old Irish immigrant named Bridget Sullivan, and she also lived in the house with the family on the third floor in a small room. Andrew's frugal habits didn't stop within his household, and he was regarded as a very strict and harsh businessman. He really was generally not well-liked throughout the town. So by 1892, Lizzie was 32 years old and Emma was 41. They were still both unmarried, still living in the house with their elderly father and stepmother. And their father's wealth was very substantial by this time. He was worth an estimated $300,000, which is the equivalent of about $9 million in today's money. Even though he was about 70 years old, Mr. Borden continued to work and led a very active life. But one thing that the girls didn't like was that he had begun to give away several of his numerous properties to members of his wife's family. Now, this angered Emma and Lizzie. They basically felt that their inheritance was being whittled down through these gifts of property. Now, on the morning of August 4th, 1892, everybody in the Borden household woke up feeling pretty sick with a stomach bug. Emma was not at the home at the time. She was actually visiting a friend about 15 miles away in Fairhaven. But Mr. Borden's brother-in-law from his first marriage, uh, a man named John Morse, he had been staying at the home while going over some business dealings with Mr. Borden. And he too fell ill in the morning. 
The cause of this was likely a stew that the family had eaten the night before. This stew was several days old at that point, but Mr. Borden refused to throw it out again due to his extreme frugality and dislike of waste. It's possible that due to the age of this stew, it had simply gone bad, but Mrs. Borden was actually concerned that someone had poisoned it, targeting herself and Mr. Borden. She believed this so much that she actually decided to go visit her neighbor, Dr. Bowen, who lived just across the street and was kind of the town physician. She got a quick checkup, kind of told him what was going on, and wanted to see if he could narrow down the cause, but he told her not to be concerned. He wasn't really worried about it. He did not think that she was being poisoned, and he basically told her just to take it easy, but she'll be fine in a few hours. Feeling assured, Mrs. Borden went back home, and once she did return home, Mr. and Mrs. Borden instructed the housekeeper, Bridget, to wash all of the windows in the home, inside and outside, which was not an easy task. And she also didn't feel great. She had also been up most of the night, feeling sick from the stew. She had been vomiting and had nausea throughout the night, uh, but still she decided to go ahead and, and wash the windows. John Morris, their house guest, had left that morning to take care of some business at one of Mr. Borden's farms. At about 9 a.m., Mr. Borden left the house for a long morning walk and to check on some business in town, leaving only Mrs. Borden, Lizzie, and the housekeeper Bridget at the home. Now, sometime after Mr. Borden left, Mrs. Borden went upstairs to the guest room where John Morris had slept the night before, and she began to tidy up, making the bed, you know, straightening things. While she was in the room, someone entered with a sinister goal in mind. While Mrs. Borden was facing this person, they struck her in the side of the head with a hatchet or an axe, which caused Mrs. Borden to fall to the floor face down. But her attacker didn't stop there and continued to strike Mrs. Borden over and over with the axe, 17 times in total, killing her and leaving her in a pool of blood. The attacker then left the room without closing the door behind them, which meant that anyone on the second floor of the home would have a direct view of Mrs. Borden's body. At around 10.30 a.m., Bridget had just finished cleaning all of the windows, and Mr. Borden returned home to find the front door locked, which was a little odd, and he was having some trouble getting his key to open this very finicky lock. Bridget went to the front door to help, and while she was kind of struggling to open the lock, she heard Lizzie laughing at the situation from the second floor, although Lizzie denied having been on the second floor at the time. Now, once Mr. Borden was finally inside the home, he asked Lizzie where Mrs. Borden was, and Lizzie responded that she had received a summons from a sick friend and had gone into town to visit them. This was somewhat odd, not only because Mrs. Borden was dead in the upstairs bedroom at the time, but also because Mrs. Borden wasn't known for having many friends, and none of the few that she did have were sick at the time or had sent her a summons. Mrs. Borden also had a habit of telling the housekeeper, Bridget, anytime she was leaving the home, and Bridget didn't know that she had left the home either. Mr. Borden was satisfied with Lizzie's response, though, and he decided to take a rest on the sofa in the downstairs parlor because he still wasn't feeling super well from the effects of the stew. 
Now at that point, Lizzie and Bridget were in the kitchen and Lizzie told Bridget about a sale at a department store that was just a few blocks away, seemingly trying to get Bridget to go to the store. But Bridget was tired. She had been cleaning the windows all morning. She still wasn't feeling well from the stew. In fact, several times when she was cleaning the windows, she had to go outside to vomit. So she decided to go to her room and rest. Just after 11 a.m., about 30 minutes after Mr. Borden had returned from his walk and laid down on the couch, Lizzie shouted for Bridget, saying, Come quick, father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. End quote. Sure enough, Mr. Borden had been struck in the head with an axe 10 or 11 times. His body was still laying in the exact position he was in when he sat down on the couch to rest. Bridget immediately left the home and went to find their neighbor, Dr. Bowen. And once she did, someone else was instructed to go and get the police. Once Dr. Bowen saw Mr. Borden, it was clear that he could do nothing to help him. Mr. Borden's wounds were still fresh, though, still bleeding. And the doctor concluded that he had been killed very recently, sometime around 11 a.m. A gruesome detail here one of Mr. Borden's eyeballs was cut in two. That, plus the fact that he was found perfectly in the resting position, led investigators to believe that he had been asleep at the time of his attack. By this point, though, no one had heard from or seen Mrs. Borden, and Bridget started to get concerned about finding her and telling her the awful news that Mr. Borden had been killed. Lizzie, though, told Bridget that she thought she had heard Mrs. Borden come back into the house and go upstairs, but Lizzie was too afraid to go up and look for her, since if Mrs. Borden was in the house, she should have come down by now after hearing all of this commotion. A neighbor who had come to the home after hearing all of the hubbub in the streets went upstairs with Bridget to look for Mrs. Borden, and once they got to the top of the stairs, they immediately saw Mrs. Borden's body in the guest room and raced back downstairs to tell the investigators what they had just seen. By then, there were police officers in the home, an actual medical examiner, and they all looked at both of the bodies. Based on things like body temperature, stomach contents, and the state of the blood on each body, the medical examiner determined that Mrs. Borden had been killed about an hour before Mr. Borden. When asked, Lizzie stated that she'd been in the barn, which is behind the house at the time of her father's murder, and so she didn't see or hear anything besides noticing that the screen door on the side of the house was open when she came back out of the barn. Police scoured the home, and they found several hatchets in the basement. One of these hatchets had a broken handle, which seemed to be a fresh break. Since the family had been sick, Mr. and Mrs. Borden's stomach contents were tested for poison, but none was found. Police considered John Morse, their house guest, a suspect for a short time, but he was able to provide a very detailed and supported alibi for his whereabouts during the crimes, so he was ruled out. By August 6th, investigators were becoming more and more certain that Lizzie was the likely culprit of the murders, and several items of clothing were confiscated from her. She was also informed that she was a suspect in the murders, 
A tip-off that seriously hurt the investigation, as less than 24 hours after the tip-off, Lizzie was found tearing up a dress and burning it because, quote, it was covered in paint. On August 8th, four days after the murders, Lizzie was summoned to testify at an inquest hearing and was given a dose of morphine to calm her nerves. During the hearing, she often contradicted herself and facts of the case. For example, she stated that when her father sat down on the couch to take a nap, she had removed his shoes and put slippers on his feet. But photographs taken at the crime scene of his dead body clearly show that he was still wearing his boots when he was murdered. Four months later, on December 2nd, 1892, Lizzie Borden was indicted for both of the murders. The jury was composed of 12 white men, not uncommon for the time, and Lizzie was able to secure some of the best and most expensive lawyers for her defense. One of their first victories in the trial happened before the trial even began. At a pretrial hearing in 1893, Lizzie's testimony while she was under the influence of morphine was deemed inadmissible. In a shocking twist, just five days before the trial began, another resident of Fall River named Bertha Manchester was murdered with a hatchet inside of her home. Now, sometime after the Borden case was over, the perpetrator of this crime was found and tried, and he was not in the area at the time of the Borden murders, and therefore couldn't have been involved. Still, since that wasn't known at the time of Lizzie's trial, this new axe murder made it seem possible that there was some axe-wielding madman on the loose and cast serious doubt on Lizzie's involvement in her parents' murders. The prosecution had trouble coming up with an exact motive for why Lizzie committed the murders, but it centered around Mr. Borden's frugality and Lizzie's desire to have and spend her father's money. They claimed that Lizzie feared that Mr. Borden was purposefully giving away pieces of his estate to Mrs. Borden's family, who Lizzie was not related to by blood, and that she wanted to stop him from giving away any more property that she felt was rightfully hers and Emma's. But Lizzie's lawyers were smart, and they focused on casting as much doubt as possible. They provided alternative theories as to what happened to the Bordens. Perhaps the same madmen who had killed Bertha Manchester had also attacked the Bordens. Or perhaps their house guest, John Morse, had more to do with the murders than he had initially let on. Mr. Borden was also not well-liked throughout the town due to his harsh business dealings, and it was possible that someone who had felt wronged by him in the past snuck into the house to get their revenge. Lizzie's alibi continued to be that she was in the barn at the time of her father's murder, and neighbors of the Bordens also testified that they saw Lizzie exiting the barn and heading back to the home around 11 a.m., corroborating her story. At one point in the trial, the actual skulls of Mr. and Mrs. Borden, complete with fractures from the axe attack, were brought out and shown to the courtroom. The shock of seeing the actual skulls of her father and stepmother was too much for Lizzie, and she fainted in the courtroom in full view of the jury. At the end of the trial, the jury of the 12 white men took only an hour and a half to reach a verdict. They found Lizzie Borden not guilty in the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden. 
Lizzie, of course, was overjoyed with the verdict, and she stated that she was, quote, the happiest woman in the world. Lizzie and Emma inherited not only their father's estate, but also because Mrs. Borden died first, it was ruled that Mr. Borden had inherited Mrs. Borden's estate upon her death. And then when Mr. Borden died, both estates were given to Emma and Lizzie. They inherited what would have been millions of dollars in today's money. The women were finally free to spend that money as they'd wanted to for so long. The sisters bought a large home in the nice area of town, and they named their estate Maplecroft. They hired several live-in maids and staff to help them manage the home, and they lived fairly luxuriously for the first time in their lives. Lizzie changed her name and started to go by Elizabeth to remove herself from the case, but the majority of Fall River was not quick to forget. The sisters lavished in their wealth, and they threw big parties that even celebrities of the time sometimes attended. It was after one of these parties in 1905 that Emma and Lizzie got into a major argument, and Emma moved out of Maplecroft and never spoke to Lizzie again. Lizzie maintained her innocence until her death in June of 1927 of pneumonia. Very few people attended her funeral, and she left a large amount of her sizable estate to the Fall River Animal Rescue League and several of her friends. Emma died just nine days after Lizzie of kidney disease. Neither of the women had ever married, and it's unclear if either of them knew the true story of what happened to Mr. and Mrs. Borden inside their home at 92 2nd Street. Over the years, the home has been passed through several owners. The address has changed from 92 2nd Street to 232 2nd Street due to the growth seen by the city and a reordering of the streets. Today, the house is run by a company called U.S. Ghost Adventures. Guests can tour the house for about $35 looking for ghosts, or you can actually stay the night in any of the house's rooms. To stay in the room where Mrs. Borden was murdered, it's about $300 a night. House rules include, quote, no alcohol is permitted on the property. We have already had two fatal head injuries in the home. Thank you for listening to this Morbid Tourism episode about the Borden House. If you like learning about morbid locations, subscribe to Morbid Tourism on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please leave us a rating or review. Let us know what you think. New episodes will be released weekly. Between episodes, visit www.morbidtourism.com to learn about more morbid locations. Follow us on Instagram at Morbid Tourism. This podcast is researched, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jules Kruger. Additional research by Amanda Poikert. Sources for this episode include Wikipedia, the Lizzie Borden House website, and the book The Cases That Haunt Us by John Douglas and Mark Olshacker.